Thanks for tuning in to Tax Strategy Digest, where we explore the fascinating world of finance. Join us as we dive into the stories, insights, and experiences of experts, thought leaders, and everyday people who are making a difference in this field. Through engaging conversations and thought-provoking discussions, we'll take a deep dive into the latest research, trends, and innovations shaping finance. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn something new on this journey here with us. Welcome to this episode of Tax Strategy Digest. Today, our guest is Reed Bennett. Reed serves as a National Council Chair of Multifamily Properties for SVN International and a Senior Vice President for SVN Chicago Commercial. As a licensed managing broker, he focuses primarily on the sale of apartment communities across the Midwest and also teams up with members of his council to serve clients across the country in over 150 markets. Reed, thanks so much for joining me on the episode here today. Excited to have you. I appreciate you, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. So why don't you tell us um, your some of your humble beginnings? How did you get started in real estate? Uh, I know that everyone has a little bit of a different path. So what did yours look like? Sure. Um, well, my path, I suppose. So I went to the University of Iowa and um, one of my roommates, we ended up living in a house uh the last couple years of college one of my roommates ended up buying a house for all of my other friends that did the victory lap the fifth year of of college and uh you know he rented it out to all of all of our friends they paid his mortgage he ended up buying uh you know ultimately about 40 some homes in iowa city renting them out to students um sold them bought an apartment complex and you know he i was really interested in what he was doing while he was doing it um, and he had given me some resources as to what he was following. And, um, you know, one of the, the small books that nobody ever talks about rich dad, poor dad was what he had sent to me in 1998. Wow. Um, and I had read that. And at that time I was, uh, so I actually, he said it at the end 99, uh, because I was running a personal training studio in the basement of the LaSalle Wacker building, downtown Chicago. And a vast majority of my clients were either attorneys or in the real estate industry. And so I would sit there and, you know, basically get paid by them. And all I would do is just, you know, basically uh, pick their brain the entire time and ask them what, you know, and once there was one specific client that he kept coming down into the, into the personal training sessions, you know, every so often every other week and it would show me a commission check that he made which was more than i made as a personal trainer you know getting up at 4 30 in the morning to meet clients and getting home at nine o'clock at night um more than i made in in two years on commission checks and i said i mean if this guy can do it you know <laughs> i need to figure out this business and then that, that's that's when I, I started really diving into it in 2000 got my license in 2001 uh, and actually ended up going with his firm. It was a, a kind of a dinosaur firm downtown Chicago and started doing multifamily in 2001 and kind of haven't looked back from that. Nice. And did did he let you kind of pick his brain and did you use him as a mentor as you started out in the process? Absolutely. I mean, he would bring me to, you know, he actually owned uh, a number of buildings in Chicago and he would bring me to his buildings. I mean, you know, that first year of brokerage, um, you know, many understand that you don't typically make any money. And I wasn't in a position where I couldn't make money. So, you know, he would actually, I'd help him go do things down at his buildings. And um, I mean, 
the the last time I worked at his buildings, I was clearing out one of his garages and there were so many rat droppings all over the floor. I said, look, I got to figure out how to do brokerage as fast as possible because this is not working out for me. Um, but yeah, he, he, he helped me a lot, um, taught me a lot about, you know, how he, and I just would listen to him and how he would talk to clients. And, you know, one thing I learned from him was, you know, as a building owner, he had a very different vantage point than the other brokers I heard in the office talking to owners and operators because they knew exactly the boiler systems and what it took to, you know, what kind of roof structure and, and um, you know, really everything. He knew how to do it all. And so he would talk to the owners and operators from a different, you know, we, we called it from the trenches. I mean, he was in the trenches and he would talk to them um, as such. And so it was really nice to learn that from him. And so I, I really tried to learn early on, you know, when I'm look at, on, in the top of a building, looking at the parapet walls, looking at the different types of heating systems here in Chicago, it's very important, um, you know, and learning a lot about that just so when I'm looking and, 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 and talking to the owner saying, hey, you know, I see you have an HP Smith boiler here, you know, and circulating hot water and it just all the buzzwords. I could never change one. If you gave me a million dollars to change one out, I could never do that. But I learned... Right you know, kind of the building systems and structures from him. Definitely early on. That's awesome. And do you think that's part of the reason you've had that success? You've been able to utilize some of those buzzwords with um, property owners and, and has that in transition given you some extra listings and things like that? You know, that that's one of them. Um, there was a, another older mentor. Uh, he was about 82 when I came on and he owned, he owned the company and I, I would just listen to how, and he was, he was the ultimate salesman. I mean, he was you know, I would listen to how he would interact and, and he would help, you know, I'd, I'd get off the phone with an owner and go into his office and he would say, why don't you do this? And there, there was one particular time he said, I know this type, I know what this type of person is. You need to go meet with her right now and just talk to her and sit there and talk to her and you'll get the listing. And it actually, it happened. And wow. so it was just listening to him and, and um, kind of hearing it from different vantage points. Um, and then really, you know, it's, it's trial and error going through this, you know, you make, uh, you know, there's, there was one deal um, early on in my career. I told this guy, he owned uh, three different apartment buildings, uh, downtown Chicago. And, um, you know, I was making a lot of headway with him. And then the, the buyer delivered an offer to me and said, I need an offer by Friday. And it was like Wednesday. And I said, you know, he really needs an offer by Friday. And it just, he blew up on me and said, and said, you know what, you know, tell this guy to go pound sand. I'm never going to deal with that guy. I, I do things on my own time. So it's like, I learned, you know, the, the different kind of egos that are associated with a lot of the owners and operators. Everybody has a different perspective. They come from different backgrounds. We have a lot of people, you know, I'm working on a deal right now where he came over uh, from uh, overseas in, you know, the late eighties and was a janitor, ended up becoming, you know, owned one building and, and now he has a conglomerate, like an empire. And so it's, it's, everybody comes from a different background and it's really, it makes as a broker to understand who they are, where they come from and, you know, kind of what their triggers are. You just have to learn that. And I learned that from some of the mentors that I had early on um, in this business for sure. That's awesome. And I know you're a multifamily specialist, but you focus on apartment complexes. You also um, mention on some of your LinkedIn posts, you do a lot of work with 
um, low-income housing, student housing, senior housing, manufactured housing? How does that translate from the multifamily space? Well, it's it's all providing housing for for people, right? So you know, a majority of what we work on is either market rate housing or affordable housing. Um, you know, the, the affordable housing took us a long time to get because it's it's a very you know niche market where you have to understand. Um, in fact, I brought on a partner about uh, twelve years ago, and I gave him at the time I had about fifty six. Uh, owners of affordable housing. And I said, look, let's run with this because you understand how to, to he was a CPA uh, by background. And I said, you understand how to just blow through these audits and understand and be able to extrapolate a lot of the data from there and, and underwrite a lot of these deals. Let's, you know, it's a natural progression. So what we do is we sit right down the middle. So we don't do, you know, 100% market rate or 100% affordable. We deal with a lot of B and C class market rate and then also affordable housing. And so it lends itself well both ways. So when, we, when we're selling, if you're familiar with uh, low-income housing tax credit deals, Section 42 of the IRC, if, if we're selling a deal that's after year 15 and it can be either recapitalized or, or, or um, recredited or taken out of the program and just run as market rate, we now are, are, are splitting the fence so we can deal with both sides of that fence. And it's all, it's all a function of the highest and best use of a property, but it's all, um, you know, really it's all multifamily and it's, you know, depending on what kind of programs we're working, um, you know, it's the, it's the niche that I started with. It's the only niche that I really understand. I tried in the downturn of 2009 when, you know, deal volume was down uh, even below what it is today. To, to, to look at triple net deals. I did that for about 15 minutes. I couldn't, I couldn't understand why somebody would want to buy a triple net deal that was in year nine of a 10 year lease. I, I had no <laughs> idea how to value it. So I just went back to multifamily. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. And it's the only thing that you can't do, uh, you know, you can't do virtually right now. I mean, like I always say, you know, you can office virtually, you know, you can shop online. You just can't live online yet. Right. And so it's it, there's always a need, and especially in this market right now. I mean, I think we're 4.3 million units shy of what we need in this country, and it's just it's never going to be something that is not not in high demand. So you talked a little bit the difference on the 2009 and today. What have you seen as the main difference between the two? Um, are, are deals still penciling out right now? Obviously. You said you're working on a deal right now. So I assume there are some, but are yeah. there far and few? Yeah. I mean, I just talked with uh, a, a buyer. He called me today. I said, what are you doing? He said, nothing. I'm very bored. And I said, why? Because their deals aren't penciling or, you know, you know, you're just not finding them. He said, yeah, both. Everybody expects this, you know, high purchase price still. Um, and it's funny because today, I don't know when this is going to air, but today, um, August 23rd is 600 days exactly from 2021. Wow. That's the last day that 2021 was in the, in the, the back part was 600 days ago. And so to, to think of it, cause that was basically the peak of this, this most recent market. I mean, we had groups that were paying sub three caps for, 1980s, 1970s vintage stuff in the in the suburbs of Chicago, which is unheard of. Um, you know, now that same deal will probably be a six and a half cap, uh, you know, at best. So 
you know, that um, that's the problem that we're seeing in this market is it's taking sellers. And I think it will take sellers another four or five months to really understand what the difference in the new the new normal in the debt markets actually does to the you know to the impact on the value of their property wow yeah i um i've actually heard a lot of the same thing so um not sure if you're super familiar with my background but i i was a mortgage loan officer i worked mostly residential and some of my buddies are still doing that and so i talk with them about it pretty consistently asking them sure. how the um how their calls are going and um back when I was doing it, there was one day in particular, and I forget the exact day, but there was a, there was three rate shifts in the same day. And there was um, over a hundred basis points and shifts. So yeah. having a person call in the morning and trying to lock in their rate was, um, you know, interesting when they didn't lock in until, you know, 3 PM. And I was yeah. telling them that now they owe an extra, you know, $900 a month. Well, um, you know, but, but you also asked what the difference is between that. So, right. and, and you, you weren't in the business in 2008, right? 2008. I was not. Okay. So my, my brother um, has been a mortgage broker for over 20 years. Um, and he was in the business in the early 2000s and leading up to, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, he would be submitting what was called no doc loans. Right. right. I mean, and he, I'll never forget the example he told me where he thought he was doing everything right and had the person submit all of their w-2 forms and all of their um you know income verification forms and he sent it to his you know head or managing director or whatever and he said what are you doing if you give me all of this i have to go run all of this stuff and and, and i have to fill out a whole bunch of other forms that you verified their income i mean hearing that just makes like gives me chills because anybody that had a pulse the difference between this market and i'm talking specifically to in multifamily when I was in the business at the beginning of the 2000s, it was all um, condo conversions. So, and I truly believed when I was 26 years old, I truly believed that there would be zero apartment buildings left. Everything was going to be condo converted. That's how, that's how fast things were condo converting in Chicago. Wow. And the reason was no doc loans. Anybody that was paying a thousand dollars a month rent could go get a loan from a bank and buy a condo that was like $350,000, which was way better than the apartment they were renting, right? And a lot of them, you know, a lot of these developers were, were you know, even taking care of the first year of taxes. So these people had ridiculously low rates. They had ridiculously low taxes or no taxes, but then they would reset after that year. So by 2008, people started losing their jobs. They couldn't pay their mortgage. And that's when everything went to hell. And it was, it was the, you know, you know, the, the, the no doc loans that got every, and that also really affected multifamily yeah. because all the owners were having a hard time keeping their buildings, you know, 80, 85% occupied because all their tenants were, it was a mass exodus. The big difference between then and now is none of the, uh, the, the well, I shouldn't say none, very few of the apartment tenants are able to first qualify for a loan because it's very difficult to get funding right now. And then secondly, nobody is selling their house because that, that has a, you know, two and a half percent or 3% interest rate. Right. So there's no inventory in the market. So you have these high prices in the home market plus, uh, you know, you know, a seven and a half 
8% loan. Right. That's why everybody is staying in apartments. And this is why I'm talking daily to apartment owners that are telling me I'm still raising rents a hundred bucks and nobody's leaving. And th this is why. A hundred percent. And I think another big downfall, because um, I remember when I was studying for my mortgage uh, loan originator exam um, and we had to learn all about the safe act and, and reason for you know the, the crash and, and everything like that. And we yeah. were, uh, we were looking at, they were doing no doc loans, but not only was it a no doc loan, it was also an interest only loan. Right. And so they're qualifying, you know, qualifying for a loan where they're only paying the interest. They're yeah. supposedly going to have a big balloon payment and there's absolutely no shot that they were ever going to be able to pay that. Absolutely. So it's really just ballooning the market way more than even just the, the no doc loans. Absolutely. And then you put in there developers of condo deals that are taking care of interest, taxes, and everything for the first year. And then they were they had in-house lenders that were making all these loans. And so, right. I mean, these people's payments doubled or tripled after all of that burned off and they're left in a building that they should never have been in to begin with. Um, and then it just, you know, it took all these lenders way too long to figure this out. I, I knew plenty of people back in, you know, 2009 that were living free in a, you know, a beautiful condo because the lenders weren't able to get them out fast enough. And, you know, it was, in, it was incredible. So I, I don't, but I don't see that in today's market at this point. Do you see so. any of the multifamily owners, um, the property owners, do you see any of them looking to sell right now? Because they do know that they kind of have a leverage despite the purchasers really being at a disadvantage with the the diminished you know buying power yeah. um they they really do have an advantage from the standpoint of they know they can get top dollar because there's really nothing else on the market there's there's such a limited supply so are you seeing that and then are you also seeing an increase or uptick in um seller financing so that they can maintain that same dollar amount that they are hoping for sure so Great question. I mean, right now, what we're seeing there, I believe there are three main types of buyers in the, or sellers in this market. One, which we have currently right now, is um, somebody that had put on a fantastic loan in 2020, 2021, even 2022, that have enough LTV to make sense of a deal that they can sell that's an assumable, uh, assumable loan. So, but those kind of deals, you know, we, we had a lot of people that, that put on loans in 2019 or 2020, and they want a purchase price that equates to like a 50, 50 or 55% LTV. It doesn't make any, it doesn't matter if you're getting a 2% loan, nobody's coming in with, you know, 60% down or 50% down or even 40% down to take on that loan. You know, it's, it, you know, a lot of people are looking at the debt constant and yeah. what that equates to as well. So, um, so there's, you know, if you have a fantastic loan that can be assumable, you'll probably get a much better rate, obviously. Um, if you have enough equity, like you said, that, and you're able to provide seller financing, one of the problems with seller financing is if they have a loan on the property, a majority of those loans have a due on sale clause. Right. And so it's tough to skirt that unless it doesn't, or unless you have, you know, you own the building outright, obviously you can do it. 
Um, we, we have a client right now we're, we're, we're working with that has a building free and clear, and he's considering uh, doing a, you know, a seller carry or articles of agreement. And what we're suggesting to him is, you know, you have to make those articles of agreement so tight. Well, first of all, you want to have the, the buyer still give you a 25, 30% down payment. So you have a nice cushion and then have um, the terms and those articles, articles of agreement so tight that you don't have to go through the foreclosure process should they stop paying you. Right. And be able to pull that property back. Oftentimes, you know, you'll pull a property back that they've improved in order to try to raise rents, which isn't a bad scenario. There's there's one building in Chicago I've sold twice for the exact same owner just because of that. Wow. Um, it's the only time I've ever done that. So, I mean, I, you know, I sold it. He sold it on uh, Articles of Agreement. It was right. It was right before the 2008. And so... The building wasn't doing bad. The guy improved it. He put on all new decks, all new windows. He upgraded a bunch of the units, but then he ran into problems with the rest of his portfolio and was trying to use this to pay off everything. And then he said, look to the seller, he said, I'm either going to milk this property or you're going to let me off and, you know, let me off of my personal guarantee. And, and the seller said, fine, give me the keys back. Cause he knew exactly what he had done to it. He drove by yeah. the property all the time. So as soon as he got the keys back, he gave it right back to me and said, sell it again. Um, so as long as you have in the articles of agreement an ease of, um, you know, the whatever, a foreclosure process, so you don't even have to go through a foreclosure process to get it back. That's another key way to do it. And then the third seller right now will be, well, obviously, you know, it could be a distressed situation. We're not seeing a lot of those right now, be just because of the, the multifamily metrics are such that operators are not having any kind of a distress unless they had a short-term bridge loan or they have a loan that is maturing and they, you know, their, their payments are going to double or triple. Um, but the other thing is there could be, you know, partnership disputes, death, disease, you know, all sorts of things like that. We call them the three D's. So if you have those, there's always a seller in every single market. There just is, but just as far as deal volume, the deal volume is about 63% of what it was at the peak the last wow. couple of years, which is, you know, but it's starting to pick up a lot. I mean, we just put another deal on our contract yesterday. We have a closing set for next Friday. Um, and we read in last month, we closed three deals. So it's like it, and that's coming off of virtually nothing for the first half. Everybody right. was frozen and their hands were up. Um, so, you know, I think it's coming back. I think there's still a ton of capital chasing deals. And like you said, if you have the right product and the ability to sell that product at a at a reasonable price, you have a ton of eyeballs on that deal right now, just because none of the other deals are penciling out. You know, the people that are just saying, if I get some ridiculous price, I'll sell. That's not sure. happening. That was happening before. Yeah. Yeah. Before I think when people were taking a lot of that, you know, cheap debt, it was easy because they had so much buying power. They were willing to take on a 3% loan. You know, it's funny you say that. I had one uh, buyer tell me, he's like, I can't afford not to buy this deal when my lender is giving me, you know, 2.8% debt. He goes, I can't yeah. afford not to buy it. A hundred percent. I guess you're right, man. <laughs> so it's, uh, that, it's crazy. And the other thing too, I wanted to ask, have you had any situations where one of your clients did a, a seller financing deal? So, you know, the, they were receiving those note payments from uh, the buyer and then they were 
they, you know, foreclosed, whatever, and they had to get the property back, but they received it in far worse condition. I'm sure that that is obviously a possibility. Has that happened in um, your experience? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it has happened. It has not happened with, with anything that I've worked on in sure. the past, um, but it definitely has happened. And that's why when you're drafting up those articles of agreement, uh, for the seller carry, it has to be so tight and, you know, it, it's best. It'd be the ideal situation if the current owner could continue the management of the property yeah. or have his management team stay on. It's not, it's not often that that would happen, but that would be the ideal situation. So you know what's going on. You can also have, um, you know, put certain triggers on if vendors aren't getting paid. If there's a, a number of liens that are wrapped up on the property, you make sure you get that out quick. And get it back quick but yes i'm sure it's happened i mean i've heard of it happening um and that would be you know not an ideal situation for somebody that didn't get you know didn't get enough down because i've also heard about people that only took maybe five or ten percent down yeah which is not nearly enough to to pick up any cushion of you know deferred maintenance that is left over when they hand it back to you totally but if you have 30 percent you know, you have a nice little cushion where if you get it back and there are certain things that they didn't take care of, you can quickly get that back up to speed and where you were before you sold it. Totally. And um, I wanted to jump to uh, something in your background. I know that you are one of the, I think it's 38 coaches uh, for uh, the Massimo group. Sure. Am I saying that correct? Yep. Could you awesome. could you tell us about kind of uh, how that came about, what you do, what your role is? Sure. So um, actually, Rod Santamassimo, when I first came aboard SVN, it was 2007, and he was actually one of the, uh, I believe, the, the vice presidents or senior vice presidents or regional managers alongside the old president. Um, and so I had met him out there at that, and he was, you know, a part of SVN until the downturn when he started the coaching uh, group. I believe that was 2008 or nine out of his garage, and he ended up building it. I think it's probably one of the best coaching platforms in the country if not the best, um, I had a number of colleagues that had hired them as coaches. And I had seen what had happened with their income and what they were doing and how they kind of, you know, within my company and then also in other companies as well, I saw them, how active they were and what they were doing. And it just seemed like they had a system. And I was watching him and, you know, um, I actually went to, it was an immersion uh, they called it Massimo Immersion in Orlando. I don't know if it was 2017 or 18. And it was just like drinking from a fire hose. And I was like, holy <laughs> cow. You know, after the two day session, I was like, and at that point I was in the business for 17 or 18 years. And I was like, I have to be the worst broker in the world because I was checking so many. I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. And so I said, you know, I can't afford not to hire them at this point. So I hired them. I had a coach for about a year and a half. And, you know, it's just like anything else. I mean, we liken it to, you know, Tiger Woods has a coach, Michael Jordan had a coach, you know, a, a lot of the best in their field have a coach because they're trying to get, they're not trying to get 10% or 15%. They're trying to get 2% better. And if you can get 2%, that trajectory shoots you significantly higher than you were before. And so, you know, what I had learned was there were, there were two or three key things that, you know, it, during the year and a half I was uh, being coached by them, I understood a couple things that just, it nearly quadrupled my income after wow. being in the business even for 18 years. And so, 
you know, I had been doing it for a year and a half. They tapped me on the shoulders. They said, look, we're looking for more coaches. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I, you know, because what I've found, especially being uh, in the role that I'm at as the national council chair, I, I, you know, we used to do monthly calls. Now we do quarterly putting all that information together and kind of making sure I'm understanding the markets and, and teaching it and talking. It, it makes me learn it a lot better. And so ever since I became a coach a couple of years ago, I've been going over all of these processes again. And it's just kind of, I'm like, Oh, that's what I was supposed to be learning when I took, you know, so it, it's helpful. And it's been, you know, I, I learn as much from a lot of the people that I coach around the country, um, you know, as they're learning in the program, just because everybody's doing things a little bit differently. There might be one thing somebody is really good at that, you know, that I'm not good at. And so we're all learning from each other and it's a great community. It's a great, uh, it's a great business that he's, that he's built there for and sure. What are some of the things that maybe stand stood out to you at first, right? That that were super important that really changed the way that you even thought about, you know, being a broker. Sure. Well, you know, one of the problems, and I have my database up now, we have 26,372 people in my database, right? That's a daunting number when you go and you sit down at your desk at eight o'clock and like, all right, who am I going to call? And I pull up my database of 22,000 or whatever people. And I, you know, I'm like, what am I going to do? A zip code? Am I doing that? You know, because we work multiple markets. I don't just work, you know, a, a 10 block radius in Chicago. We work a lot of Midwest markets. And so one of the things they helped me do was take that and narrow it down to 400 people. Because the one problem I was having was, I knew every building when it, when it would close and I would see the comp close, I knew the building, I knew the owner and I knew the, the, the buyer. I'm like, damn. And I'd look and I'd say, you know, when did I talk to this guy last? And it was, I didn't talk to him for, you know, 12 months or 13 months. I was like, that's why I missed it. And so, you know, that was one of the main things was really focusing down to the people that you, you a want to do deals with, and like doing deals with, or, you know, want to eventually meet and do deals with because you're watching what they're doing and you're seeing maybe if they're posting on social media, you're understanding who they are, what their values are. And then two, who's active, you know, who's bought deals in the last three years, two years, um, you know, what, what their hold periods are. And then if they're likely to be a seller uh, and narrowing that down and then really just, you know, farming those, those, you know, contacts and making sure you understand exactly what they're looking for. That was a key, a key driver. And then, you know, one of the other things was once you have that list, the way that I was making my calls, never forget that, you know, my coach at the time, because we, we, we would submit our metrics. Here's how many hours I'm calling. Here's how many calls I'm making. Here's how many contacts. And he was looking at, it, he's like, I can't believe that you're spending this amount of time prospecting. And this is the amount of calls that you're making. And he's like, all right, take me through it. And so I walked him through it and I, you know, told him that I was, I'd look them up in the database. I'd go into their, you know, their social media accounts, see what they're talking about. I'd, I'd go into their webpage. I'd go into their properties. I'd go, cause I have every property connected to them. I'm looking at deals that have mortgages coming due in the next 12 to 24 months, I, you know, and he goes, and then you're getting a voicemail, right? I go, yeah. He goes, so you just did 10 minutes of that to get a voicemail. So now, you know, if you do it for two hours, you're basically getting 12 voicemails and you're not getting, having any connections. So now in two hours, you know, you can make, you know, triple that amount of call just by calling, having their stuff up, 
you know enough to get through the first, you know, first of all, we're, you know, you just want people to talk. You want to understand right. what the problem is. You don't need to know all of their stuff. I mean, it's better when you know, have an idea, which we do, but that was, that was one of the key drivers. That's awesome. It sounds like a lot of it is more than just following up. It sounds like the biggest takeaway may have been really building that relationship and starting to just talk with them. Like you just mentioned, really starting yeah. a conversation, getting through it and um, discussing and solving their problems and knowing that you're going to be the person they call when they have questions and well, eventually want to sell or buy. Absolutely. I mean, you, you have to have it be what's in it, you know, they're always thinking what's in it for me. And most of the brokers or, you know, mortgage brokers, real estate, really any, any person in sales is calling up these owners and saying, look what we just sold. Look what we do. I've been in the business for this long. This is what I, you know, I, I can do for you. They don't care. They don't care. They want to know like what's in it for me. And most of the stuff we're just sharing information. So I'm calling up somebody saying, Hey, do you, did, did you hear about, you know, this deal that sold down the street from you that's going to have a direct impact on the value of your property? Just wanted to make sure you were aware of it or there, there are new building codes that are happening in this side of the town that I just wanted to make sure that you were aware of because that's also going to have an impact on what you can do with your property and just sharing that kind of stuff. Because a lot of the owners are deal are, are um, data junkies and info junkies. I mean, like all of us, we want to understand what's going on. We want to know what the neighbor's doing and, and how they're maximizing the value of their property and you know, those kind of things. So if you're sharing that, here's what we're doing to help other multifamily owners in the market. You know, it's, it could take five, six, seven, you know, sometimes I've, I've talked with owners for over 12 years, meeting with them, talking with them, sharing things with them. They're on my list. And then finally they say, Hey, I'm thinking of selling this. Do you want to come meet me for lunch? And, yeah. you know, when you get those calls, it's, you know, makes, makes all the prospecting time and information sharing worth it. You know, you do have the other the other side of the coin where, you know, I, you know, we had one the other day where he took all of my information, loved it, and took the valuation we gave of the building, and then, you know, is is trying to sell it off market to a guy that I know, um, and I know he's going to have a very difficult time with that. So, um, you know, it, it does work both ways, but a majority of the time, if we're giving information, providing value, creating content, you know it's going to work out more often than not. I agree. And I think that providing that free value is the reason people will call you back. They will do business with you back. When I was um, originating loans, I had uh, a couple clients and I would do this almost every time if I knew that they were about to go make an offer. Um, and I figured that the real estate agent just wasn't doing it. And they probably were. I hope that they were. Um, but I would go out of my way. I would just, it would take me what, two minutes. I'd go on Zillow and I'd say, Hey, look, there's a couple properties in the neighborhood that are selling for, you know, X amount and you no need to give me a call back, but just wanted you to be aware that that's what they're going for. I think that you could probably, you know, get in at this price based on your pre-approval. It shouldn't be a problem. Have a great day. Yeah. Let me know if you need anything. And just that little bit of extra, you know, information advice that I went out of the way for them. I got the call every time. Well, you, you also don't forget a key thing that you just said in that, which was, there's no need to call me back. Right. Because that right there takes like, you know, we've been doing that for a little bit at the end too, where before it was like, Hey, you know, give me a call back, you know, that, so that's obligating them. So, that, you know, when you hear that, even when I hear that, I'm like, ah, 
or even worse. Give me a call back. I just love to take, you know, 15 minutes of your time. I mean, that's the worst right. to ever leave. But if you're saying, hey, no need to call me back. Just wanted to share this. More often than not, you're getting that call back. So yeah. that's, and, that's and it was always a call back with a lot of appreciation and thanks. Sure. Um, and I want to say my the, the close rate on those deals was somewhere probably 90, 95%. Yeah, um, substantial. And, and it's pretty crazy to say that big of a number, but it happens every time just because you're giving value when you start to give and give. And I think that goes with really any business and in life in general, the more you give, the the more you get, you know, it, it's a full circle. Absolutely. Um, another big thing I, I always like to ask on these podcasts is um, what do you define success as? You know, that that's a good question. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, because I, you know, I've been doing this for 22 years and, you know, success was different 22 years ago for me. And it was different 10 years ago and it was different before I had my kids. And, um, you know, I, I think success is really the relationships that you create and are able to, to kind of foster. And, you know, most importantly, now where, where I'm sitting in my life, success is, you know, having my kids and my family be taken care of and, uh, and happy so I can interact with them, uh, and not be a hundred percent in this business and not taking care of them. Um, and just being able to enjoy, you know, the, the, the time with them while I can at this point. That's awesome. And, um, as we start to wrap up here, I, I also usually follow up the success question with, uh, one that is on the same lines. What is your why and, and why do you do what you do? You know, my, my, my why is basically the same, the same thing that I uh, attribute to this, you know, what I'm doing this, doing this for, for the, the success side is, you know, it's just, the, it's just my family now and being able to enjoy the time and, um, you know, the, the driver now is, you know, I don't want to be at a point where I'm sitting there. I mean, I've never been in a, I've never been in a career where I wasn't, you know, 100% commission based. So I've never been in an area where it was, hey, can I take off early so I can coach my kids baseball game? I've never been in that position. Um, but I do this job so I can have that time. So I can, you know, not be concerned with, you know, if my wife wants to, you know, buy a table for the hallway and I'll be concerned with that. So you know, think things like that, just so, you know, and the other thing is there's nothing like this business from, the, you know, the brokerage standpoint in real estate where you can learn so many different perspectives of real estate and understand exactly which direction you want to go in this business and why. I mean, brokers start in this business and end up doing a multitude of different things in the real estate space. I can tell that you you love what you do. It sounds like in you're talking about cold calling and how you were you know, so excited to be talking about it. Most people hate cold calling. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, look, I don't know how many people like it, but if you, you have the one thing, and it's very difficult, especially for the people that are just getting into the business to understand about the numbers game. I mean, we're talking 95% plus of your calls are going to be no's, dead ends, nothing, maybe a few hangups here and there. But you have to understand that that 5%, you know, will make you significant amounts of money if you can get through that 
And that's where a lot of the people can't do it. And you know, I'll, I'll never forget a story that one of my mentors, uh, John McDermott, uh, was told me because he used to manage a number of offices around the country for different firms. And he was in, I think, Irvine, California. And he had one junior that was working for, you know, nine months or 10 months, just pounding the phone, doing everything that he needed to do. He's at his desk. He's the last person on a Friday night, you know, in the office in Irvine, can't, you know, just deflated and depressed. And he thinks this is not going to work. He gets in, he gets into the elevator, goes down to the parking garage, gets in his car, goes down to the gate, doesn't have the 10 bucks to get out of the gate, goes back and he's quitting. This, he's decided he's quitting. When he goes home, he's quitting. He's done. He's not coming back tomorrow and on Monday. He goes back up to his desk to try to find 10 bucks and he sees the light flashing on his phone and it's a seller that ended up having a portfolio of about $10 million with the deals that he ended up selling. And if he hadn't gone back, he never would have had that. So, you know, usually brokers and people in this business quit probably three or four months before they're pro they're going to make it. Wow. You know, that, that's it, an awesome story. I can't, yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah. And I mean, look, most of us in this business, you know, at some point or another, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably thought about it maybe five or six times, you know, like sure. I have guys calling me saying, Hey, we, we need an acquisition head. We're going to pay you this amount plus bonus. Dang, that's, you know, just, it's tempting, uh, especially in down markets where, you know, it gets tough because it is a roller coaster ride and it's a feast or famine in some cases in this business for sure. So. I love it. And before, before I let you go, um, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way that they should do that? And uh, how can you help? So they can reach out to me anytime. Um, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn every day. I'm actually getting uh, a little more involved in Twitter. Okay. Um, I never understood that, but I'm kind of think I'm starting to understand that. So they can, social media is fine. I can give you my email or cell phone. You can put it up in the notes, whatever you sure. want to do. Yeah, whatever you want to. Um... So my cell number is 771 seven three four two and my email is read.bennett at svn.com that's r-e-i-d period b-e-n-n-e-t-t at s-v-n sam victor nancy.com perfect well thanks so much for hopping on i've really enjoyed it and uh, i always appreciate your time you got it man let me know how i can help